Well, hello to all and welcome back to Rockets Bacchus. Uh, today on the line, we have a doctor, Manuela Genova. I screwed up her name already. <laughs> we'll, we'll, let, we'll send that over to you, Doc. Um, she has an impressive bio and has put in uh, years of study and practical work, and she's earned many letters after her name. And the first question I had is, after reading her bio is, where does she get the time and energy? Is she a time traveler? We will look into that and ask that question. But uh, before we get into that, we'll turn it over to the doc. Welcome to uh, Rock is Bacchus, Manuela. Uh, what should we know about the doc and your organization? Uh, thanks so much, Steve, for the invitation. So my name is Manuela. Joanno is how we pronounce the last name. I guess it looks uh, scarier in writing than it actually sounds. Yeah, so I've been a physician for 30 years now. I graduated from the University of Ottawa, or the U of Zero, as we so fondly called it in 1990, and right out of the gate, I did a lot of eMERGE. So I've been an eMERGE physician for 30 years. I've worked in small-town hospitals. I've worked in very remote and rural areas. I've worked in the teaching hospitals in Ottawa. So I've kind of been all around the emergency scene. And I've also had my own family practice for many, many years, and um, I've always been a student of the human condition and long before I went into medical school I was just always curious about what made people tick and where do they get their resilience and how do they maneuver through the inevitable challenges that comes with life and then when I was in my family practice I really had a very concentrated um, practice of psychotherapy. I've always been really interested in psychiatry and I've gone to all the conferences and uh, read everything I can about mental health and medications, where they're useful, and uh, but really interested in helping people achieve an attitude about what they're going through or where they're living or what's going on, an attitude that they can live with in peace, because I think that's what it's all about. So back in 2014, I got really interested in our first responders and military members and veterans and how they were maneuvering through their life challenges. And how, did that, challenges. Uh, how did that get flagged for you? Like, what drew your attention to that? Oh, boy, that's a story in itself. Well, you know, 30 years emerged. Well, I guess at that point it wasn't quite 30 yet, but um, you've got your own challenges when you have difficult cases. When you're the only physician on, in a department and you have something really sad and horrible come in and you know, that you do the best you can, and when you're kind of wrapped up with that, you still have to pull yourself together and go see the other 20 people in the waiting room. Yeah. So, you know, that was always a challenge, and I was always into figuring out how can you continue to be useful when, you know, tough stuff's going down. And then through some personal challenges as well, but what really got my attention was when, well, we had a suicide close to us, and I realized, wow, this is just not acceptable. This just can't happen. It threw everybody for a loop. And um, I kind of started thinking, well, what do we do? I really feel very strongly that all of our first responders, military, um, veterans, you know, they're really all part of the circle of care, the emergency care, the security that we have in our country, in our society. And I just feel that physicians have a real obligation to take care of our first responders, military members, veterans. You know, you are the true warriors. You're the ones that are willing to put yourselves in harm's way for the benefit of society. And I just feel we have an infinite debt to pay, you know, for what you put on the line. Despite, so that's where uh, I come from. Despite what uh, Prime Minister Trudeau might have said about uh, we're asking more than uh, they can give. yeah yeah no that was a kind of unfortunate uh, comment because i think there is a endless debt but on the other hand i also think that we could be doing a lot more and from where i sit with everything we've done in the last few years i really don't think that giving proper assistance has to be that complicated you know so we started project trauma support uh, back in 2016 we became a registered charity in 2018 and what we do is we bring people um you know first responders military members and veterans to our property in Perth we have a nice spot right on the Tay River there and we put them through a pretty intense six-day program so it's pretty action-packed we cover a lot of ground we kind of go on a little journey together and we really help people look at their whole life story with a new lens. So, like I said, I learned a long time ago that all we do in psychotherapy is help people achieve an attitude that they can live with, that gives them some peace. 
And I think in our program, that's what we're really doing. We're helping people reprocess everything that went down, look at it with a new lens, see if we can shift some perspective, see if we can find a way that you can make peace with everything so it doesn't feel like it's got a claw in your heart still, you know? Well, that sounds like it's from your mission statement, and I copied uh, part of it down. Um, although I think you pretty much caught. Oh, you failed to mention that you graduated summa cum laude as well. So. Oh boy, you found something online, did you? Well, <laughs> there's a lot you know, about I mean, you online. You're, oh dear. Okay. You're, well, they can't prove any of it. But, um, well, you're an yeah, impressive you know, I've always been interested in learning. My dad was an engineering physicist and a professor, and he really instilled a love of learning into all of us six kids. And you know. Um, I just, I do. I feel like I'm still a sponge. I still remember a lot of the things that um, I got out of these esoteric lectures in medical school. It's funny how you can pull things out of the deep uh, archives of your brain sometimes when you're facing something that you think, huh, what is this? Oh, yeah, I remember something about this. But, no, I I loved medicine. I would go back and do it all over again. And, um, you know, going through medical school probably isn't that dissimilar to some of the tough things that, our first responders have had to do because it sure makes you come face to face with yourself and learn what you're good at. And what well, you're especially in a busy, right? uh, busy emergency room. I mean, yeah. Yeah. There's uh, not a lot of time to stop and kind of think, uh, what just went down and what do we do about this and how do we do and could we have done something differently? So yeah, it's sort of after the action stops, you sit there and, you know, and look at it all and kind of do your own debrief and your own yeah. appraisal. And yeah, so I kind of know what it's like. And I know what it's like to have to make life and death decisions sometimes with incomplete information. Yeah. And I know what it's like to, you know, be in a high stakes environment. So I have so much respect to what the first responders do. And I'll be the first one to say, the first one to say that, you know, most of the time we have the advantage of working in a nice controlled environment with lots of people around and we've got our tools and our, you know, monitoring equipment and all that kind of stuff, diagnostics. Um, But we don't have to operate in a situation where we are physically in danger like our military folks and uh, first responders. So that sure adds another element. And we're not out in the elements. You know, all types of weather, all types of day and night. And um, so, like I said, so much respect, admiration, and gratitude for what you do. Well, thanks. Uh, um, you, you say in your mission statement, um, through soul-searching and experimental exercises, they will have the opportunity to explore their stories with a new lens. In doing so, they will be able to shift their perception and their paradigms so they can continue to move forward in their lives in peace. That. It's a hell of a mouthful. It sounds lofty, <laughs> and there's a lot going on in there. Um, can you break that down a bit? Oh, yeah. Like I said, we pack a lot in six days. So I really do think that where the mental health system might be missing the mark a little bit is we've really come to recognize that, you know, PTSD is one thing. The diagnostic criteria are well laid out in the DSM, right? The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, we're on our fifth edition now. But what seems to be missing is the injury to the very humanity of a person that comes from doing the work that you do. You know, operational stress injuries are kind of an overarching Um, description of a number of different things and they can certainly include PTSD which is what's gotten all the attention but there's also um, you know anxiety depression and where we do a lot of our focus is on moral injury and what we call sanctuary trauma and we just finished our 52nd cohort on Friday and that means we have now had 521 people through our program so we've learned a bit And what has become very apparent to me is that very often it's not PTSD, it's the moral injury piece that causes the burden of suffering. And I really think that, you know, if you want to have a program that is going to address, you know, suicide prevention, I think you really need to look at the moral injury component because I think that's often what will drive a person to suicidal thoughts more so than just straightforward PTSD. Okay, so, so in our program, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, uh, it'll, it'll lead into another portion. So just finish up what you're saying there. I was just going to clarify something on moral injury, but uh, sure, uh, we can talk more about that. Yeah. But in our program, 
we recognize it's not just the thoughts that you have and the attitudes that you have and, you know, the flashbacks and the intrusive thoughts and sleep disturbance. Those are huge things for sure. But we also recognize that there is an injury to the very being of a person. And if you want to be able to address that injury that's, you know, kind of an injury to the heart and soul of a person, you have to take a completely different tactic. Medication does not address moral injury. We've had lots of people that have come to us and they've been on any number of medications, but it's not touching the source of the injury. It's not getting to the part that is really hurting. And we have to take a different tactic, I think, if we're going to address moral injury. So that's where the experiential part comes in. We try to get people out of their heads because you can keep overthinking things. You can overthink things to the point where you're almost pulling the carpet right out from under yourself because you don't know where you stand anymore. Right. But sometimes you need to get out of your head and kind of get into your heart and you have to just experience things with your physical being to really allow yourself to make sense of what happened to you and how you were affected by it. So let's back it up to, I mean, that sounds very, it, it sounds like a combination of, of mindfulness and um, experimental um, trust exercises. And that's what it brings to mind. But how, how do you go from, do you link moral injury to PTSD each time or is moral injury a, um, a whole other ballpark? Well, here's the way we explain it. I mean, people that come to us have a lot of confusing thoughts, confusing emotions, confusing things that they end up doing, feeling, perceiving because of their injuries. So we try to unpack all that and give some clarity into what is causing what. So we know what PTSD is. Like I said, it's it's well documented in the DSM. So you have to have a traumatic experience to get post-traumatic stress disorder. And that traumatic experience has to be significant. It's not just you're upset because your boss yelled at you. It has to be life-threatening. Right. Life-threatening or potentially life-ending in something you might have witnessed or been party to somehow. Mm-hmm. It can also be caused by severe sexual trauma. So there has to be the incident. And then you have symptoms from a number of different categories that uh, you need to demonstrate are present to make the diagnosis. So there's the hypervigilance where you're looking for you know the next threat and you're always scanning the environment and you're hyper-aroused. There's a hyper-arousal state. Then there's the hypo-arousal state or the numbing that everyone starts to do sort of automatically because they just don't like those raging emotions that they're dealing with all the time. Just It's like having the kids fighting in the back seat while you're driving. You just you get so annoyed and overwhelmed with it, you just kind of turn it all down. You turn down the volume. And the problem with that, of course, is that you can't just turn down the volume on the unpleasant emotions. You end up turning down the volume on everything. So you don't look forward to anything, holidays events, family gatherings, you just, everything becomes a sea of gray in your life. And then the other categories, of course, have to do with intrusive thoughts and nightmares, just unwanted memories of sights, sounds, smells, visions, all those kinds of things that you just, they're unwanted, they're, they're become at inconvenient times, they're very intrusive, so that's a huge part of it. uh, And then, of course, the Sorry, go ahead. There's one other thing, which is the avoidance, right? So you don't want to go anywhere where there's people, places, and things that remind you of traumatic incidents. So that's PTSD in a nutshell. And to actually make the diagnosis, you have to have had the symptoms for at least 30 days. The symptoms have to be severe enough to be affecting your everyday life, and they have to have been present for 30 days. And that's because a lot of the time after a trauma, you can have post-traumatic Rest, but a lot of people will kind of find their own way to process things, they'll find their own coping mechanisms, and they'll more or less go back to baseline. So that's one thing that's a very fast tour of you know, PTSD, but moral injury is something entirely different and has a whole different set of symptoms. Yeah, I think of moral injury of, say, a first responder, a cop or a soldier, um, you know, kicking in a door, lobbing in a grenade, that, which he thinks is full of insurgents, but has uh, a child or something in there. Absolutely, would be, you know, or being or given being given an illegal order and acting on it would cause moral injury. I would imagine. 
Yeah, so we have a working diagnosis of moral injury that serves our purpose. And there's a few different, you know, definitions out there that different groups are using. But we look at moral injury as an injury to the heart and soul, the very being of a person. And it can happen when you maybe did something you wish you didn't or you didn't do something you wish you did or you didn't do it fast enough and there were dire consequences. And, you know, there's a lot of times, as you said, that you had to do things to totally go against what you've come to know is right and wrong, and uh, you're just following orders. And it can also happen when you see things that are just overwhelmingly sad and you're not allowed to do anything about it. And we see that, of course, a lot in peacekeeping missions where you're, yes. you're supposedly there to keep the peace, but you're watching horrible things happening to innocent people, and you've got to witness it and not intervene. So... You know, the symptoms of moral injury are very different from the symptoms of PTSD. And um, they include, you know, this overwhelming feeling of sadness and injustice and demoralization of, you know, what is actually going on here in this world. And also there's the shame and guilt. Shame and guilt are the most difficult things, I think, for people to live with. And I think that's where, you know, you can kind of convince yourself that you don't deserve to have happiness the rest of your life, that somehow you're a bad person and you're going to get punishment and that's what you, you know, that's what you have to look forward to because that's the right thing that you deserve. So your mind will play all kinds of tricks. And then I mentioned sanctuary trauma, and I think that's another very real part of moral injury, and that's when the very organization that you so proudly wore the uniform for, that you were willing to give your life up to, you know, you think they're going to be there for you when things go sideways, but instead, you know, the whole organization seems to turn around tromp on you and make everything worse. So the sanctuary trauma can come from so many different places. It can come from a sense of leadership failure, of losing faith in the mission. It can come from insurance companies. It can come from your own comrades and colleagues who throw you under the bus or, you know, stigmatize you because you're having some issues coping with things. So sanctuary trauma is a real thing, and it it comes with another set of symptoms, and that's the anger and the sense of injustice and sense of having been wronged. So these are really difficult things for people to deal with, and these are the kind of mixed-up emotions and feelings that people have that they come to our program with. So one of the first things we do is try to give them a little bit of insight into what particular emotions are being caused by what incident, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Just to get back to sanctuary trauma for a moment, because that's relatively new for me, and I'm sure it will be for a lot of the guys out there. So sanctuary trauma occurs when you don't get the support um, in a place you normally would feel um, supported, like uh, your rifle platoon or your your company or your, your partner in your squad car. They're not... They're not supporting supporting you or causing you to feel that uh, you're the cause of the problem kind of thing? Oh, for sure. It comes from many different places. The other word for it that's been used in the literature is institutional trauma. Okay, yeah. So it, it, you, you nailed it, though, Steve, when you said it's when you go somewhere expecting you're going to be cared for and expecting you're going to be you know, looked after and get the help you need. And instead of them being helpful, they make everything worse. Yeah, a, a lot of medics I spoke to, medical people I spoke to, express that um, quite frequently because they're within the system. And uh, for whatever reason, they feel that the system doesn't give them the same um, priorities, if you will. Maybe because they're expected to suck it up and carry it on. <laughs> I don't know. Um but a lot of medics seem to ex- experience that particular um, uh, set of events. Well, there's kind of a double layer there, right? When you're a first responder, a military person, you know, you just have the expectation for yourself that you're going to act like the superheroes that, you know, were in the comic books you read when you were when you were younger. I mean, you have that expectation of yourself, but society kind of puts that expectation on you as well. So take it that one step further where now you're in the medical field and you're the one that's supposed to be providing care to those people who are already the heroes. So, you know, your cape has to be that much bigger and and that's the perception you have. So it's very difficult to admit that "Eh, I'm not doing, you know, so well myself. And, but that's just such a wrong way of looking at things. And if there's anything we could change, out there it's a perception that 
to say that you need a little bit of assistance dealing with some of these very difficult and salient experiences, to say you need some assistance coping or getting your mind around what just happened is not a sign of weakness. There's not something basically inadequate about you. I mean, when you look at it, there'd be something wrong with you if you didn't have some impact from some of the things that you've seen and you've had to do. And anybody can get this injury. Anybody can be one incident away from really feeling like their world has exploded. It doesn't matter how strong you are, how well-intentioned, well-trained, brave, experienced you are. You know, you get too close to the fire, you will get burned. It's as simple as that. And with mental injury, um, it exposure to, to trauma, like repeated exposure to trauma, is more likely to give somebody um, PTSD. Or somebody, not give them, but somebody to develop PTSD. Oh, for sure. You know, and when you look at what you do in the military, um, you could have had hundreds of different incidents that could be really difficult to deal with. Same with police officers, paramedics, firefighters, correctional officers, everybody. You know, and it's it's interesting, I, I find, when people are asked, you know, to fill out forms to explain, well, what exactly caused your PTSD? <laughs> well, you know, which one of the hundreds would you like me to pick? Yeah. You know? From and which tour? Sometimes, sometimes they're from incidents that, you know, started the whole process decades ago. We see that very often. Sometimes, you know, when you keep going, keep moving forward, keep working, you can really kind of push all the bad stuff away to the periphery. But when you stop or when you retire, that's when everything can come to light on you and you kind of look around and think, oh, boy, and there's lots here I haven't dealt with. But the good news is, Steve, that we really believe that there is good help available. And when we look at the whole picture and we have a better understanding of the mechanism of injury, what parts of a being of a person are injured, and we take the whole picture into view, then I think we're going to be a lot more successful in helping people maneuver through, you know, all of the difficulties. And I'm very optimistic. And a number, a number of the people I interviewed are also uh, optimistic. If not optimistic, definitely hopeful. Um, most of the people I spoke to don't think that uh, PTSD will ever be cured. I disagreed with that personally myself. We just there's parts of the brain we're still experimenting with, and um, who knows what what we might find out someday. So I'm, I'm, I wouldn't write off PTSD as non-curable. But at the moment, I think the goal is to learn to live with it and and to advance like don't ignore it don't ignore that you have these issues but you know address them best you can and try to try to find another outlet for your anger or your frustration or whatever whatever it might be does that make sense yeah, thank, thank you so much for saying that because i know that a lot of people once they get a diagnosis of ptsd they get the message well, you know, sucks to be you. This is your diagnosis. Uh, it's never going to go away. It's not curable. But, yeah, we'll help you live with the uh, symptoms and maybe here take these pills and you won't be so jumpy. And it's really disheartening to hear how many people have been given that message. And I keep thinking, like, who has the right to take away your hope? But I think yeah. part of the problem is we just don't have a good handle on moral injury yet and all the other things that come along in the operational stress injury category because um they just we haven't explored that you know medicine for the longest time has really shied away from anything to do with what you would call a heart and soul of a person yeah you know most people look at that and think wow uh we're getting into people's beliefs uh that's more like religion no we don't go there well no we we don't have to go to religion but i think we have to look at some belief systems if we're really going to help a moral injury because the only way to help a moral injury i believe is if you can take a step back and connect to something greater than yourself and try to find some meaning and purpose in what you've been through and there's always meaning and purpose you know one of our favorite books is man's search for meaning which really highlights the fact that if people can understand the why what was the reason that they were there in that fight. What was the reason that they were the one that received that call? There's always something that you bring or something that you get out of what happened. And if you can turn things around and try to figure out how things truly went down and look at it all with a new narrative, then you might be onto something. And again, it's all about making peace with what happened. And there's many ways you can do that, but it's 
not within the realm of mainstream medicine to even go there. Yeah, so I mean, you hear a lot about um, treating depression with uh, microdosing of psilocybin, um, magic mushroom, um, and uh, and MDMA. Uh, they're not happening in Canada. I ha- believe they're happening in the UK and in uh, USA as well, um, where they're they're trying to just trigger the the brain to to release more more chemicals to to get over uh, the negative feelings. So they're using, you know, mindfulness plus drugs to, to get a guy to uh, um, change his outlook on, uh, on the depression or PTSD, even if that's what they're suffering from. So what are you thinking of, what do you think about uh, augment therapies like uh, art therapy, for instance, um, in treatment of PTSD? Well, you know, I think anything that gets you out of the regular what's of the way you think and perceive and recall things is going to be helpful, right? I mean, people automatically try to do that sometimes when they self-medicate and they distract themselves with drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, whatever it is. Those are unhealthy, maladaptive coping mechanisms. (laughs) Um, But what you really need to do is get a different perspective on things. And you want to sometimes, like I said, get out of your head and into your heart and soul more. And any of the artistic uh, endeavors, they do that. They can allow you to get into that flow state that was so beautifully described by Mihaly Shinjentsumai, the Hungarian psychologist. And I think... You know, the flow state, uh, having some type of activity that really captures your imagination and makes you less self-conscious and makes you get, uh, you know, moment-by-moment feedback of how well you're doing and how you're accomplishing your goals. These are incredibly powerful things, and I think that they're very much linked to a mindfulness state and a meditative state. Mm which allows you to connect with something greater than yourself. And, you know, I always say to people, if you can't envision something greater than yourself, think about engaging with your own highest self, your own highest creative or intuitive self. And you can certainly do that with a number of different creative arts. And, you know, I think with the psychedelics, again, I think where they really are useful is they give you a bit of a perceptual change. And this is what it's all about. It's how can you shift your perspectives and your perceptions to get to a new vantage point where you can look at everything with a fresh eye more objectively and maybe you'll see some things that you haven't seen all along, no? Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting. I love the quote from Mark Twain. You know, he says, worry is the misuse of your imagination. Well, if you're hypervigilant, and you're finding yourself worrying about what may or may not happen, then it does. It, it hijacks all your creative thought and your imagination. Your imagination is supposed to be there for you to imagine and create cool things that you can kind of bring about in your future, right? Whether it's art, whether it's a garden, whether it's a new hobby. But the creative uh, side and people's imaginations can be hijacked for so long by the hypervigilance that they kind of get rusty and, and being able to to think up fun, exciting, creative things that would really bring joy to their life. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the art therapist who described it to me basically said uh, that it, it, it sort of distracts you from the portion of your brain that uh, is connected with being worried and, and hypervigilance and all of this. And you can focus in a mindful way on, you know, the clay pot you're doing or the painting or whatever it is you're working on. And it just stimulates the brain. It doesn't shut off that other side of the brain, but it stimulates a different center of the brain. So you can, you can like, it's almost like using a narcotic. It, the pain is there, but you're dealing with it at another level. Absolutely. <laughs> <Did> that, <laughs> I'm not sure that sounded really hippie-ish or not. I'll have to listen to it later. Um, no, I, I think it's so true. And you can overthink things and you can get tired of those same old circusing thoughts in your brain. And anything you can do that's a pattern disruption, yeah. that anything that gets you out of your head and more into your heart and that creative place. Music does the same thing, right? right? And sometimes you can express what you're feeling easier 
through listening to music or playing music than you can by trying to verbalize it. The uh, I've, I, I'm not aware of any Canadian studies on it, but uh, a couple of American studies say uh, PT, PTSD, up to 20% of soldiers um, may develop PTSD. Now, that seems like a huge amount, although in the last couple of months I've met or talked to, you know, dozens of guys. Um, so maybe it's not that far-fetched a, a number. Where would you say we are in Canada? Um, oh, at least that. And you know that uh, Nick Carlton's group at the uh, Canadian Institute for Public Safety Research and Treatment, SIPSERT, they did a study on first responders in Canada a couple of years back, and the numbers were quite a lot higher than 20% of people who were having some form of psychological impact from their work. Right. So, again, I mean, you get the results based on the questions you ask, right? So yeah. if you're just looking at symptoms of PTSD, I think that would be largely underrepresenting the entire um, gamut of operational stress injuries. You know, if you include anxiety, depression, um, moral injury, sanctuary trauma, all into that, not just PTSD, I am sure you're going to find a much higher percentage of people who have been impacted directly by their service. Statistically, yeah. Well, Mark Twain also said there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. So, <laughs> I love that, yeah. <laughs> so, and, you know, I love the Einstein quote, too, that not everything that can be measured is worthwhile, and not everything that is worthwhile can be measured. <laughs> Yeah, that's an excellent one. Um, so, the Greek historian Herodotus, he was uh, um, talking about uh, a soldier after a battle, and the, he commented on the soldier being blind and having hallucinations. And that was, you know, 400 BCE or whatever it was. And then the Mesopotamians had a king, um, Elam or Elan, and uh, the writer said his mind has changed, which seems to be, uh, it may or may not be describing PTSD, but the writings certainly look like PTSD uh, issues. So is there any way of protecting one against PTSD? Like I'm thinking things like we protect each other or protect ourselves with uh, resistance to interrogation uh, techniques, uh-huh. for instance. Um, so just getting back to your further or your first point there, Steve, if you go back to reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, you'll find a lot of, you know, kind of themes that really line up with moral injury. These things have been around forever, right? When you think right. about Shakespeare, out, out, damn spot. Remember that quote yep, from Macbeth? From Macbeth yeah. Um there's a there's a nice description of moral injury right there. So yes, I do believe that the scenarios that create you know, moral injury have been played out over and over again throughout human history. So none of this is new. Um, we don't so, seem to be learning, do we? I'm sorry? We don't seem to be learning how to how to uh, <laughs> not kill each other yeah. and stop this sort of thing. Yes, unfortunately, as long as there are wars and there are people who are driven by, you know, whatever agendas they have uh, that aren't particularly admirable, we're, we're going to have more of these things to contend with. But you were asking about can we prevent them? And, you know, I absolutely believe that we can. And I think that, uh, well, this has certainly become a huge area of interest of mine and where we're doing a lot of work right now is how can we build, help people build resilience, the left of boom, as they say in the military, before these bad things start happening. And I think that it really can be done if you can be assisted somehow or prompted or encouraged to develop a personal resilience philosophy. And this is a mindset, and this is a paradigm of how you see yourself fitting into the world. And when you look at service, you want to think, okay, who are you truly in service to? Are you in service to your military organization or your police organization, or your paramedic organization, or are you in service to something that is a greater calling? And is your philosophy one of being aligned with whatever it is you believe that, uh, you know, pulls the puppet strings, as you say, in the the show, you know? 
So I think if you can do some type of soul searching ahead of time and figure out what your own virtues and values are and try to stay aligned with those. Now, of course, there's going to be some things that you're going to be called to do in military life or or policing life um, that is really out of the ordinary experience. And either given, and we see things that fall into certain categories where, you know, people can feel like, okay, I must be an evil person. I had to do this evil thing. Well, that's where you need a little bit of extra kind of thinking around concepts and have some tools and different metrics which you're going to bring into the equation to sort of judge yourself and and what you had to do. And and we have ways of helping people with that. But I do think there's a lot that you can do to really align yourself in a philosophical and even a spiritual way, if I dare use that word, turns a lot of people off. But I think there's a lot that you can do. And, you know, the other thing that I find really intriguing about this whole diagnostic criteria for PTSD is that you have to have somebody having significant symptomatology that's disrupting their everyday life. It has to last for 30 days before you can even slap a diagnosis on a person. So the reason for that, as I said earlier, is so many people will find their own coping mechanisms. They'll find their own ways of processing what happened, and they'll, they'll come to an attitude about it that they're okay with. So there's a huge window of opportunity in there for someone who can really help guide a person away from those faulty thinking patterns that can make them fall into the rabbit holes where they can have, you know, a lot of these um, very real symptoms. But can that be done? Become permanent. Manuela? Yeah. Can that be done on a large scale of uh, like 1,200 soldiers coming back from a rotation? I mean... I so believe that it can be, Steve. And like I said, I... I am the eternal optimist, but when we've heard the stories of so many of the people that have come through our program, and it's such a privilege to hear the stories, you know, I'm sort of thinking, wow, you start recognizing patterns, right, in the way things are done, and then you start also recognizing opportunities. Well, if only this had happened at this point of inflection, if only somebody hadn't said this but had done this instead, you know, mm-hmm. the whole trajectory of what went on after that would have changed. So we're definitely identifying opportunities for intervention that could certainly make things a whole lot better. How much better, we don't know, but I'd sure like to find out. Yeah, definitely, because we're losing a lot of a lot of good uh, men and women to suicide. Uh, there were three that I'm aware of this week. Um, oh, that is heartbreaking. Every time I hear of another person just giving up their struggle, um, it, it's just it's like a knife in my heart. I just feel it very much. It's, it's definitely, uh, and especially when in a small community like our military and our police forces, you definitely feel the impact, um, the shared experiences and whatnot. Even if you didn't know the guy, you know that he's you know, walked a lot of the same ground you have sort of thing. Um, and, you know, Steve, that connection and that kinship, that's what everyone comes to realize is what holds everyone together. It's knowing that, other people can understand you, they're on the same page, they validate your experience, they know you because they were there too. And, you know, as we say that um, no one gets out of life without some kind of hardship that seems to be our inheritance as human beings. Now, those of you who sign up to a life of service in the military or emergency services, well, you're going to have a steady diet of really, really difficult challenges. So that's a given, and the, the flip side of that, though, the antidote is we're also hardwired for connection. And that's where the healing, certainly for moral injury, happens. Mm-hmm. And we don't make use of that. I mean, we find that the group therapy approach is incredibly powerful to help people feel that connection, feel that they're validated, have other people, you know, hear their confessions if need be, if what you really feel you need is some forgiveness for yeah. what you had to do. But there's just nothing that comes close to having the power of that connection. Of course, when you lose someone, you feel that disruption in the connection. It's heartbreaking. Ideally, how long after uh, troops get back on the ground should they be getting some sort of uh, moral checkup? Like, Before, during, and after would <laughs> be <with> my answer. <laughs> True, but, but usually before we go on a deployment, uh, you must know all this. Before we go on a deployment, there's a uh, you know an hour tops maybe two hours if they throw in a padre and a uh, 
psychologist. Well, they'll give a mental health, uh, um, mental well-being for your mental health speech, but it's usually pretty banal. Um, you know, there's come talk to us if you need anything kind of thing. Well, yeah, that's, and I think, I think that, um, historically a lot of the psychological support is coming from the sports psychology literature and it doesn't quite match up with the sort of psychological resources that people are going to need if we're going into these potentially morally injurious situations, right? So, I mean, I'm sure anything that you get is going to help and any kind of acknowledgement that, yeah, what you're about to do could be really tough. I mean, that's great (laughs) to get people a little bit more aware and tuned in to whether they're having difficulties, but I really do think that there's avenues for giving people some things to ponder that might be more helpful. It, it might be, I don't know if you found this to be true, but I think it would be more difficult um, with a group of young soldiers. So you get in with your when you're 17, 18 years old. Um, you go through your basic training. If you're combat arms, you go to your combat arms training. And uh, you're taught the tools of your trade, and uh, ultimately your trade is to go out and kill people. Um, yep. And we get these guys in very young. So to convince them of that at a very young age, I mean, I was a complete <laughs> numpty at 19. when I look back at it and uh, how I made it to 20. I have no idea, but it's easy enough to ingrain these guys with the, the violence needed to do the job. But how do you go about undoing that? Like, an organization well, you're, ab- you're absolutely right. You know, I laugh because I think of those signs you see, uh, quick hire a teenager while they still know everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I remember in medical school, we were, we were kind of taught tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, the, the young people, they think they're invincible, infertile, and I uh, can't remember what the other one was, um, indestructible. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and it's true. That's the mindset, and and that's really what you're trying to indoctrinate into the young troops. That you know you're going to be strong. You're going to listen to commands and follow them, no questions asked. And and I, there's definitely good reasons for that. Don't get me yeah, wrong. No, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I think that the way you approach things, I, I think it's all in the delivery. I think it's all in how you sell a concept and an idea to people. And I think having people with lived experience come and talk to people, not just anybody with lived experience, but somebody, because everyone's got a shitty story, right? Yeah. But the real challenge is how do you take your story and how do you change the narrative? How do you explain what happened, how it impacted you, what the repercussions were for you, and how did you do that soul searching You find your way back? And those kinds of stories, I think, would be very instructive and they give people some pause for pondering, you know? Yeah. Is there still a stigma around mental injury? Do you think that's lessening? Do you think that society is slowly coming around to the fact that, yes, we have people with mental injuries? And I prefer the term mental injury, although it might not be specific enough if you want to talk about, you know, OSI or PTSD itself or depression. But I think mental injury is one of those things. It's a term that um, you and I would understand. Anybody on the street would understand an injury. And uh, yeah. it, it needs time to heal. And you you got to you got to take that time to heal, so it makes it sound like mental injury rather than mental illness. Like mental illness has this black cloud that goes with it. <laughs> no no pun intended. Um, but everybody can understand. Yes, this is something we can fix. Yeah. Where mental illness is one of those scary things that we heard as kids, kind of thing. Stigma is a very complex thing. There's layers and layers. Um, I like to say there's three levels of stigma. And yes, I do believe stigma is alive and well. I mean, the first level of stigma is the stigma that you have for yourself and your own story and how you explain to yourself and others, like what happened to you and why you are where you are right now, you know, because people do beat themselves up and they, they feel that they will be stigmatized because they're stigmatizing themselves and they don't want to acknowledge that, hey, maybe I'm having a hard time with this. I, I should be able to do this. I was trained to do this. Why am I feeling the way I did after yeah. this went down? You know, there's that first level. Second level, of course, is the way we stigmatize other people 
people around us. And that can come from a number of different reasons and places. And I, I really do think that very often if you're hurting yourself and then you're seeing somebody else that's displaying openly the you know impact of that type of hurt, if you're trying so hard to cover it up in yourself and you see someone else just overtly showing it, you know, it's human nature to try to attack something in other people that we don't like in ourselves, right? So right. I think there's a lot of projection that happens. And again, you know, because there's, in the military and paramilitary organizations, there's still a real pull for people to climb up the ladder and get those promotions. And they know that if they show any kind of weakness, it's still going to work against them. So the temptation is there to hide, deny, uh, do whatever you can to keep going so it doesn't come to light that you're not doing so well. And then, you know, when people do start saying that they need help and they start going off work, then very often, if there's more and more people going off work, then the ones that are left holding the, you know, the schedule and holding the line and putting themselves in danger without having as much backup as they should have, then it creates a whole other kind of avenue of not really wanting to admit that what you do is really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. So it's very complicated, like I said. Um, and, you know, it's great to have things like Dow Let's Talk and, you know, Road to Mental Readiness where you're mm-hmm. giving people permission to say, hey, I'm not okay today. Right. But I think the more important thing is you can have these announcements and you can have these disclosures. But I think what is so much more important is how can we come to people's emotional rescue and, and mental health rescue and how can we make them realize that, hey, the sooner they come forward, the better things can be dealt with and the fact that there is true help available i I think that's where we should be putting all of our emphasis you know so one of the takeaway points from you i guess would be there is there is hope and help if you uh if you want it absolutely and you know i kind of keep kind of thinking okay exactly what are we doing here with our project trauma support and thinking you know what we're we're selling a product it's hope You know, that's what we want to do. We have an acronym for hope we really like, hold on, pain ends. And I think that, you know, people need to know that whatever they're going through, it doesn't have to be permanent. It doesn't have to be like this. There's there's many different avenues out of what might feel like a hellhole, you know. And um, we definitely have seen people have some pretty significant turnarounds and how they were feeling and how they go from post-traumatic stress or PTSD to what we call post-traumatic growth. And they go on to have great lives. Yeah. You know, that, that was and, an excellent, um, uh, that's just, uh, I got to interrupt you on that one. Cause that was an excellent point. The, the, uh, PTSD growth. I mean, that, that's something that, that you can, you can, you can get from, from talking to others to talking to professionals and to go to programs like your own, but most guys uh, can't see past the the darkness of the, or a lot of guys, I shouldn't say most guys, a lot of guys can't see past the darkness they feel. They don't see that hope. So how do we get that to them? How do we get that across? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I heard um, Colonel William Nash speak, and he was a psychiatrist with the Marines, I believe, in the U.S., Mm-hmm. Um, and he went on to do quite a lot of work with moral injury. He's probably the grandfather of moral injury, and I heard him give a keynote speech one time, and he said the most important thing, if you're going to try to help someone with a moral injury, is to help them envision a better future for themselves. And that w- that's where you want to be able to use your imagination for what it's meant to be <laughs> used for, which is you know thinking of wonderful things that you can have coming your way in the future and, and making them happen, you know? Um, But yeah, post-traumatic growth is a real thing. And when you've done the soul searching, when you've really tried to figure out where was it that the difficulty came from, what particular part of your own set of experiences, your own paradigms, your own operating systems did not stand up in the situation, when you can figure that out and you can do something about it and get some more understanding and shore up your coping mechanisms, you can bounce back from adversity and come come from a you know better place, come to a better place than you ever were, which allows you to gain some mastery over your own emotions. And um, you know the word now in the psychological literature is self actualization. You yeah. can you can have some more understanding about your own self and 
where your sensitivities were, where your vulnerabilities were. I'm not saying that this is easy. And, you know, some of the terrible things we've heard that people have been involved with are just incredibly tragic. And it really makes you do some deep, deep soul searching Mm -hmm. to find these attitudes that can bring you peace. It is not easy. Sounds simple, but it is not easy. But when you get to that place where you can find forgiveness, if that's what you need, or you can be you know, relieved of shame, you can find some self-compassion that you did what you had to do and you didn't create the situation. You just did the very, very best you could in a really, really tough, you know, situation or circumstance. That self-compassion that can lead you from a place of shame and guilt to a place where, you know, I'm grateful that I could do what I had to do as distasteful as it was and know that there are certain circumstances, especially in war, where it's just not useful to use the usual measuring standards that you would bring to your everyday self. You can't measure your war self by those instruments because it does not compute, it does not work, and it only causes a lot of distress. So these are the kinds of concepts that allow people to work through some of these very, very difficult situations that they found themselves in the past. And yes, we do see people come through and say, you know what? It was really tough. I went through a really dark time. But now looking back, I was actually blessed by my injuries. And I needed to look at some things. And I needed to do that inner work to come to a place of peace. So there. That's how I describe post-traumatic growth. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. And you can, this is a six-day program um, these guys go through, is it? Yeah, it's six days. It's action-packed. They're long days. And We've got a lot of ground to cover. And do they come back for further um, uh, treatments or refresher, refreshers, if you will? Well, we have a way that we set things up where, you know, people can stay connected with the group. Uh, we have a Facebook group for our alumni. There are peer support groups that have sprung up across the country, and now they're all on Zoom. And anyone can join them. They're pretty much um, facilitated by alumni of our program. And they kind of stick to some of the principles and philosophies that they learn when they're with us. So we do have, you know, various avenues of follow-up. And we're trying to, we're always trying to expand our program and our offering. We're, we're trying to scale up what we're doing. We're trying to spread it, you know, to more areas in the country. We do have people coming from coast to coast right now. But we're, you know, we're a charitable organization. We don't really have sustainable funding. We're doing lots of grants writing. Uh, we're hoping that we can keep going. The uh, Royal Canadian Legion has been phenomenal with us. I have to say that I cannot say enough good things about how they support us. True Patriot Love has been phenomenal with us as well. And if it was not for them believing in us right at the very beginning and giving us money when we were like nobody's on the new kids on the block, yeah. we would not have gotten to where we are at all. So I just, those are wonderful organizations. Boomer's Legacy has given us money. To the Stand and Back has given us money. And there's so many individual legions and individual people who have donated to us very generously. So this is what keeps us going. And um, we did get the Veteran and Family Wellbeing Fund grant at, at the beginning a couple of years back, and so Veterans Affairs has definitely come up and given us some great support. It's allowed us to get our research going so that we can hopefully demonstrate that, hey, we are here and we just want to be useful. So keep us in the game, please. So then why don't you give your uh, business a full plug or your your, uh, group a full plug, how they can contact you, where they can contact you? I mean, you're an easy find on on Google. Uh, yeah, so um, the best way to contact us is through the website, uh, projecttraumasupport.com. There's a contact us button, and uh, there's also a donation button if anyone feels like they want to help us out because um, that's so greatly appreciated, getting some tax receipts. But, um, you know, we are doing everything we can to bring people, you know, funding can certainly be an issue, and we really don't like the idea of charging people themselves to, to come. We'd really like to avoid that if at all possible. But, um, you know, like I said, I feel that we have a real obligation to people. But if we just if we don't have any funds, then that becomes an issue. But, uh, you know, we certainly do what we can, and uh, we're really dedicated. We have eight physicians now. It's not just me. We're physician-led, but very much 
volunteer driven. So we Mm -hmm. have a lot of mentors that come back and they help us out. And they're all wonderful people who are really invested in seeing people have a better result in their lives as well. So yeah, just the website is the best way to contact us. Okay, so we definitely got the website, and I'll I'll make sure I print that up on the uh, when when we go to air this. Um, I guess one one other question. One here's a tough question for you. Someone who's contemplating suicide right now, what would you say to them? Oh my goodness, this is of course the thing that is devastating for all of us, and this is what prompted me to get into this work in the first place. I would say. Don't believe everything that your worried, frazzled, sleep-deprived brain is feeding you. Because when you have a lot of psychological distress, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of depression, there's, you know, maybe shame and guilt, your brain will start feeding you a line of shit. And pardon my language here, but, you know, <laughs> it's okay. It's sometimes a new concept to people that, you know what, your, your brain might be wrong, what it's, what it's feeding you. And it's very easy to slide into this way of thinking where you're beating yourself up, where you've got that what we call itty-bitty shitty committee in your brain that is feeding you constant derogatory remarks and condescending and insulting you. And, you know, starting to tell you things like, wow, um, you know, you're such a loser. Your family would be better off without you. The whole world would be better off if you weren't here. And this pain is never going to end. That permanent way of looking at things is very dangerous. And you start believing this is never going to end. I will never find a way out of this hell. And, you know, this looks like uh, the only way out. Well, it's not the only way out. There is hope for everybody. And you just have to find the right people. And, you know, we certainly are not afraid of talking to anybody who has suicidal thoughts. And we would like to talk to anyone who has suicidal thoughts so we can convince them that there is another way out. And I feel very confident when I say that, you know, even if you are feeling that things are hopeless and you're too afraid to go and get help simply because of that walk of shame of going to the emergency department, um, what we are able to do as physicians is pave the way for you. I mean, if if you need to go to an emergency department, um, by all means, have a buddy call ahead to the department Tell the charge nurse that you're bringing in a veteran or a military member or a first responder, and they will understand that it is very, very difficult for anyone in one of these fields to go into the emergency department along with the, you know, the regular crowd who, who sit there in the waiting room for a long time potentially. And you know, certainly myself, and I speak for a lot of my colleagues, if we know that there is someone coming in who's you know, in a bad way. We will do everything we can to find a room, quiet room for you, away from everybody else. We'll get you as fast as we can. We'll try to do everything in our power to make you feel understood, cared for, and um, getting the help that you need. So I really do worry about people's experience of going through the mental health system when they're in crisis. And I know that can be a real deterrent from going for help, but it does not need to be that way. All right. Well, I think that wraps up an hour. So the last uh, last word goes to you, Doc. What would you uh, What would you like to say? My last word. Yeah. Um, I'm like I said before. I'm very optimistic. I think with everything that we've learned and we continue to learn, um, I'm seeing well our, our team. We're all seeing some very real opportunities for meaningful change within the mental health system that we can be better equipped to give meaningful help to people who are struggling with these operational stress injuries. So I'm just going to say, hold on, the pain does end, and um, I think we have good reason to look forward to things improving in the future. All right, Doc, thanks very much for showing up and uh, throwing in your expertise. Uh, the final question, as I alluded to in the beginning, because you got a hell of a lot of work done, a lot of education in a short time. Are you a time traveler? <laughs> well, my mind is a pretty scary place. It goes <laughs> many different places. Um, I certainly contemplate a lot of things, that lessons learned from the past, and I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about what possibilities exist in the future but I also try to be very mindful of what's going on here and now because uh, that's all we got, right? Is, uh, our life is just nothing but a series of instants that we're tropping through. So uh, 
I guess then I am a time traveler. <laughs> I think you've just disappointed a bunch of us nerds who are listening to this talk. You're not a true time, time traveler. <laughs> 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 nice try. You heard it here, folks. She's not a time traveler. All right, Doc. Thanks a lot for uh, coming out. Uh, we'll make sure we uh, give your uh, your organization a, a, another plug on uh, when I go to print this up. You'll come up in March, I guess. So thanks a lot again for coming. And thanks all of you who uh, tuned into Rock is Bacchus and started this whole show. And uh, hi, Mom. Hopefully you got yourself unlocked in the clouds and can figure out how to listen to my pod. <laughs> Mom, it's locked out still. Um, so that's all I got to say, guys. Thanks for coming out. Hey, thanks so much for the invite. It was great talking to you and um, really appreciate all your listeners' time out there, too. Yeah, they're, they're a great bunch. Great bunch. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Live life today because you don't know what's going to happen to tomorrow. And be kind to each other out there. Cheers. <laughs>